I'm Michael Foster, and you're listening to It's Good to Be a Man, the podcast where we are extending God's house and father rule by helping men to establish their own houses in strength, skill, and wisdom. And if that's something you're into, which you probably are if you're listening to this podcast, this is a good episode for you, because in this episode, I'm going to be interviewing Christopher Wiley. Chris is a pastor and author. He wrote the book, Man of the House, a handbook for building a shelter that will last in a world that is falling apart. So it's a very helpful, practical guide to getting your house in order. It's not just spiritual. It certainly is spiritual, but it's also practical. And I think you'll see that this book is pretty unique, and Chris is very helpful if you're looking for some steps to take towards establishing a biblical household. podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for asking me on, uh, Michael. I enjoy reading your stuff and glad to be with you. Yeah. So my friend, we have a friend in common, David Talcott. And David mentioned you to me a while ago. And I took a while to actually read your stuff. And then I read it and my mind was blown. (laughs) It was really, really encouraging because I was coming to similar conclusions that you had already came to and wrote a whole book on. (laughs) So it was very encouraging. And as I I started to enter into this whole conversation of sexuality from a new angle a couple years ago, namely through just all these young people that are staying single, the, the MGTOW conversation, red pill, all that sort of stuff, men's rights activists. And as I entered into it, I, I started to see some gaps in my own biblical sexuality. And I don't think I really had much of a understanding of what drove attraction and arousal, all that sort of stuff that the Red Pill guys are um, obsessed with. And, and some of the things they have to say actually are quite helpful. And on the flip side, I started to realize that there was a gap when it came to household and that I didn't really have a doctorate of household. And that's because when I looked at marriage, I realized that what we, we mostly have in churches is this idea that the marriage is all about kind of self-fulfillment, making your spouse happy. It doesn't have any really greater purpose to it. And as I studied Proverbs 31, uh, I started to see, wait a second, I mean, this is all about building up a household. And it just unlocked this very important theme that I had totally overlooked that was right in front of me the whole time. And so you've written a book on this, uh, The uh, Man of the House, and it's a great book. I just finished it, and I highly recommend it. Let me start this way. How would you describe the modern understanding of a household? Well, I think you did a pretty good job. I um, I think that we find ourselves at a point in time where we've lost any kind of external and objective point of reference. And there are basically two points of reference that uh, historically Christians had. And the Bible was a handbook to these points of reference. And so the Bible helped you to connect to them. But the problem is a lot of people today read the Bible without any sort of thought as to the, the, what the Bible you know does in terms of connecting you to those points of reference. So one of those points of reference is sort of the day-to-day sort of practices of a healthy household that just basically help you to survive in the world and get you from generation to generation 
and this whole way of sort of uh, approaching life was common around the world. It, it, you know, you have uh, many of the same th- sorts of things, uh, sort of practices and traditions and observances and customs in the East and the West. And then the other point of reference is cosmological, you could say, or heavenly. And so what, what's happened is we've lost touch with both those things. And because we've lost touch with those things, uh, we look inward for meaning. And when we come to marriage, uh, we come to it, as you noted, looking for satisfaction. We, we want to just kind of be happy and and women come with their desires and men come with their desires. And we find ourselves in an environment and in a world that is is actually hostile to the traditional household at many levels. And so consequently, there's no there are very few external supports. In fact, the larger culture uh, is conspiring to break down households and sort of atomize households and make everybody sort of like, you know, just it's just an individual. So and, and then that makes them much more susceptible to suggestion and use by other institutions in society like mega corporations or the government or whatever. But anyway, those are sort of things that are uh, kind of at work in creating this sort of contemporary way of thinking about the household. And I'm afraid that most, the vast majority of the evangelical literature out there is completely sort of caught up in this. It's sort of endorsing it, giving it kind of a Christian gloss. It's kind of like, you know, a you know Jesus t-shirt or bumper sticker or something like that, but it's not, it doesn't go any deeper than that. So anyway, there's a long story how I came to, to understand this stuff. I'm not, I have, I have, I take very little credit for seeing these things. I was helped a lot to help uh, to, to, to see these things at some point. Yeah. So there was a book I was required to read when I was going through I guess it was marriage counseling. It was sacred marriage. And it's uh, what if marriage isn't about making you happy but making you holy? Well, I kind of like that. That's the, there's the, I like that subtitle. But the problem with a lot of those books even is that it, it all becomes about uh, kind of the spiritual, the disconnected. And so I get I get that marriage – he's trying to connect marriage to the the macro, right? Uh, but how it plays out in the physical, there's uh, evangelical Christians are very, very uncomfortable with matter, with stuff, with the body, and how uh, how all this is supposed to fit together in the day-to-day life. And that is where I've seen it be the weakest, uh, by all means, where everything is reduced to, to something that you can't touch. So we have to hold those two things together, obviously, and that makes it makes sense to me that the micro would break down as the macro did because, really, a household is just a microcosmos, right? It's a little right. mini version of of what God has made. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, you know that the title that you noted, the the, uh, the sense I have, I've not read that book, but the sense I have based on just the title is that. You know, marriage is just one more thing that can aid in your personal sanctification. And the individualistic mindset they, that marriage right. is kind of just a means of grace at, at best. Right. Right. Yeah. And, that, and, and that's part of it, too. So, you know, we psychologize everything and then we individualize everything. We spiritualize everything. Now, spiritualizing everything is not bad if you have what you just noted a moment ago in mind, and that is. We live in a cosmos, which means an order that is governed by a 
king, and that's you know a heavenly king. I'm not talking about an earthly king. I'm talking about the Lord. So when you have all that in mind, and he made heaven and earth both, and that there is a relationship, and all these things were uh, kind of second nature to people you know, up until just a few hundred years ago. Everybody kind of understood this stuff. Marriage for the longest time was a practical and necessary institution to survive. That's huge. Are you still there, Michael? I am still here, yeah. Uh, for some reason, I thought maybe you'd, we'd lost connection. No, but, I'm mute, so I, you don't have to hear me coughing all the time. <laughs> but, but, now, but, now, but now today, we, we try to figure out ways to make, because we don't, th- we don't really have a deep conviction that marriage is necessary and households are necessary. We, we think of them as a lifestyle choice. So if you're into that sort of thing, good for you, but I'm not, so I'm not going to get married or whatever. What, what, what's happened is, is we have developed other institutions that make it possible for us to, to survive, at least in the short term, without the household. And that's one of the reasons why households aren't forming. And these other institutions, they, they're more or less emaciated households, it seems to me, that they are a quasi-household where they are reproducing part of the household. But not the whole. So it's uh, it's it's screwy what it uh, creates in culture. Yeah, and that, I agree with you. They, what's happened is, is we've more or less either had the household's functions stolen from the household or we've delegated them away. So like the welfare state, I love to pick on the welfare state because it's just so easy to do. <laughs> but what, ha- what, you, what you have in welfare state is, is sort of a substitute for extended families. So, you know, we need safety nets because we want to be mobile because the economy requires a very mobile labor force. But when the household was the center of the economy, people tended to stay put and extended families tended to be in the same area. So when hard times came or someone died, uh, ideally, I know obviously it didn't always work out well, but ideally... Uh, you can see this in you know uh, biblical law. Uh, the extended family was supposed to be the safety net. Yeah, they are. That is my retirement to some degree. Is my, yeah, my six my six kids. Well, you know, you say that with tongue in cheek, but that was actually the way it worked. So in the old, you know, today when people think about children, they think about them as liabilities because they because somebody else is using them as their assets, not you. They're like a so, they're a compact disc, right? They they uh, yeah. they're, they're a CD. They they mature, and, that, and when they mature, that's when you get kind of the the return on your investment. It, to speak of it, crassly. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, that's the way it's supposed to work. Exactly, that's the way it's supposed to work. But it doesn't work that way for most people. What happens for most people is right about the time your kid gets useful, he, they move to the other coast. You know, so so they're not actually there for you. So. That's why we've substituted 401ks and da 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 da. da. And uh, but in the ancient world, a, a man with many sons was considered a wealthy man. He was you no know, people didn't feel sorry for Jacob. They didn't say, "Oh, isn't that too bad? He's got twelve sons, all those mouths to feed." Now, every one of those boys was an asset. They they contributed to the household. They, they made it wealthier. Let me back up. I have a question for you. So you say that this idea of the household, which I think is built into the very design of everything, and that's why you see it cross-cultural or the the key aspects of it. It's not limited to just, say, a Judeo-Christian worldview, but you see it all over the place. Up until a couple hundred years ago, you said that was more or less common. What changed it? I know, obviously, the Industrial Revolution affected a lot of things, but is it merely technology or was there a change in doctrine and mindset? 
Yeah, the the change in doctrine in my sense uh, was uh, a concurrent and uh, even preceded it. So when you think about the modern turn, you know what you have is a turning away from uh, the external world and turning inward. So you know when you think about Descartes, you know I think therefore I am the sort of subjective turn, the turn to consciousness, uh, and an understanding of reason as sort of something that just goes on inside your head instead of something that pervades reality. These are things that are modern in nature or modern aspects of the, you know, the way we, we think about a reality. But that's not the way people in the past thought. But what happened, uh, the reason why it's concurrent is, is because at the same time, what this does is is people are, are sort of broken down. The sort of the whole modern approach to things is to sort of break things up into their into their smallest components. So in the in the ancient world, or even even middle, medieval world, and even into the modern early modern period, when you thought about a man, for example, you thought about him not you know as sort of a uh, a composite of different things. Men were obviously physically. Uh, biologically male, but generally speaking, they're stronger. Generally speaking, you know, they've got greater capacity for uh, violence in a good sense and a bad sense. They tend to think in certain ways that are uh, unlike the way generally women think. And these are generalizations, but, but what that meant is that when people in the past thought about a man, it was a sort of a, a kind of a, a total picture. They didn't try to break everything down into smaller components and sort of say, well, that's not really part of what it, be, it means to be a man. In fact, we're not even sure what a man is. That's kind of, kind of the way we think today is we've broken things down so much. And the reason we've done that is we've wanted to make people uh, sort of more self-directed. So people aren't, you know, they, they don't necessarily feel like they need to, to uh, conform to a, an external standard. And then we also like the idea of interchangeability. You know, so for example, I've got a lot of guys in my church who work for United Technologies, Pratt & Whitney, you know, those guys, jet engines, defense, that kind of thing. And what, what they have in that world is they're, they're, they try to have as many interchangeable parts, not just in terms of the machinery, but in terms of the people. So you don't want to recognize differences that are intrinsic to a, to a whole class of people like women are this or men are that or that kind of thing, because that gums up the works. You know, you want to be able to just sort of switch people out. And then, you, then of course, you, you frame it all within the uh, sort of the ideology of liberation and uh, self-expression. But as you know, you, you know, we've got a lot of young guys out there who've been encouraged to be, you know, self-expressive their entire lives, but they don't know what to express. They're lost. <laughs> they, they don't have any standards. They don't have any way of knowing, you know, what they ought to be striving for. Yeah, they have no purpose. I mean, that's... Yeah, yeah. And, and that was the danger that I, I saw ultimately in the red pill is that they understand – they have a decent understanding what drives men and women as it relates to their erotic desires in particular. And that's not all, but that's one area they focused on. But they don't understand the purpose of sex. Right? They just understand yeah. the appetite. They have no telos right, at all. Right, yeah. They're very much in a kind of James Bond. You know, They're just playboys. And I think I think a lot of guys go through. Uh, at least I've seen this now in that world. They go through a, a phase where they learn uh, all that stuff, and then they're like, "Now what?" And right. um, but the the church hasn't been able to give them the now what. But the church hasn't also been able to tell them how to engage women because I think evangelicals really don't have a doctrine of the body. 
and their anthropology is greatly lacking. And that's why you see a lot of folks leave the evangelical church for the Roman Catholic or, say, the Greek Orthodox, uh, where they have a higher value on stuff, you know, the physical. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. So how do we how do we explain what what is a biblical household? What what does that mean? Because when we hear it, when we say it nowadays, household, we just think a home, a place where you eat, you know, kick back, uh, watch Netflix. Uh, what do you? What is the biblical understanding of the household or God's? What does God mean when He uses that in Scripture? Yeah, well, a household in the ancient world uh, was, like you noted earlier, and I, I said uh, in my opening uh, comments, something that was uh, sort of a uh, an institution that was considered the, the most basic and natural institution of, that there is. And uh, a household uh, was an economy. Now, the word economy tells the story because it's a compound word. Uh, it's from the Greek, oikos, nomos. House law. So it was the law of the house. And the paterfamilias, the father of the family, pater, the the father was the governing authority that oversaw the house and made certain that the law was observed. Now, the law was something that was, you know, designed to regulate roles. It was intended to regulate uh, patterns of work and rest. So the law wasn't just related to, you know, getting people to work on things together. It had to do also with, you know, Sabbath observance and so forth. And this was all very familiar to Jews in the diaspora. When they went out into the Roman world, it wasn't as though this uh, pattern of life was somehow alien. Uh, <laughs> you know, they had the they had the law. They had, you know, honor your father and mother. They had, you know, a, a pattern of life that that they were able to point at and say to their Roman and Greek neighbors, hey, we, we do the same things too. We, you know, we, we do all these things. We recognize th- this, so, you know, as, as being, you know, the way things should work. So when you get to, you know, you know household codes in like uh, Colossians or Ephesians, that's not the Apostle Paul trying to make the Romans happy. That's the Apostle Paul taking the household life that was common throughout the world and showing how it is to be brought into the into the kingdom of God and reflect the rule of Christ in all of its aspects all of its features so so it's all over the new testament but but at the center of an economy was productive property and that took different forms i mean in the, the easy easiest one to imagine as a farm so a family farm. And the household codes, for example, today, for example, you know, when we talk about the household codes, it's almost like they're an embarrassment. We say, well, why, why should dad have all this power or whatever? Well, it's because we don't rely on our houses for anything. You know, they're basically, uh, as you noted earlier, places where we just go and crash. And Well, I, I got to bring this up. I was, when I read the book, you talk about Tiakawaki. The end yeah. of the world as we know it, and, and I discovered that uh, I kind of had a life reboot in uh, 2009, where I went from having a pretty high-paying job uh, to living in someone's basement for three months, mm. and and that was right on the, uh, the the sort of economic downturn that the, yeah, the major sure. recession, and I started reading survivalblog.com, <laughs> <laughs> which is actually a really you don't want to read it too much or you'll, you know, sleep with your shotgun every night. But, um, <laughs> but one thing, I, as I started to read some of these preppers and survivalists, I came to realize that 
there's nothing that I depend on in my home that I make. I mean, yeah. nothing. There's, right. And I started to realize how few uh, – if there was like a Carrington event, if there was like some big EMP that came down from the sun and fried the world – uh, I, I would die. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. You know, and I, I'm tough, right. but I'm only tough in this this right. this world, right? I'm not. Right. I, I, I depend on all these systems that are ran by other people, and I am not self sufficient. And so, as I was reading uh, that whole concept of building a shelter, it really resonated because I, I want to become anti fragile in that sense. Yeah, I mean that's great. I I think the the, the my, and I, this comes out in my book a little bit. My my primary criticism of the prepping community is that uh, it looks at uh, other people as more of a kind of threat than a than a, than a resource. <laughs> so you know what what I tried to show with my with my approach is that you know you really don't need a bunker in Montana. What you need is a household filled with people who are looking out for each other that's right so and even in the prepping community they've come to, they have this idea of the golden throng or whatever this big group of people that don't have anything they're going to come and you can have this house but you're going to run out of bullets right so you right. really have to have a community around you and so so they're talking about you have to have society you can't just have a independent household but the collection of households that is society yeah, that's that's a good sign. I, I guess maybe there's a, been some maturation or maturing in the outlook there. So you said that Paul was talking about, you know, Paul was referencing the Roman idea of the household. Is that why you pulled from Xenophon uh, for Man of the House? Well, yeah, that was a classic text, of course, in the, in the ancient world that was designed to help uh, people think about this very thing, you know, a productive household. And that that particular book is a very accessible book. And I would say that my book is a, is more or less a kind of commentary on it uh, and sort of an app, sort of taking it and, and bringing it up to, you know, our time and trying to think about most of us aren't going to be farmers. <laughs> so, you know, how, how, how do we think about this today? And I, and I, I'm actually really encouraged uh, because I think that we're at a point in time where we're ready to return to the household for with but we don't have to give up air conditioning to, to do it if you know what i mean i do and i think some people who just maybe scan your books or read an article or two by you are going to make the mistake of thinking that you're calling us to uh, you know kind of go all wendell berry or all thoreau but the reality is uh you you're not anti-technology in any way uh, you, technology actually could play a major role in returning to productive pro- uh, property, so I guess I'll use that as a setup. What what is what is productive property versus just plain old property, and right. and then and then how does new technologies tie into that? Yeah, uh, productive property uh, consists of assets that put that give you a living without having to sell them. I think that's probably the best way to put it. So you know, most people have a lot of stuff. And they say, well, I've got property. But uh, then, you know, if they sell it, they've got no property. Uh, and that would be the only way that it could give them a living for at least a little a little while. Productive property is property that continues to give as you use it. So, you know, a, you know, a classic example that we've already used is a farm. You know, when you, when you work the farm, it gives you a living. You know, another classic example would be real estate, uh, investment real estate. You know, I own several 
commercial properties. And so, you know, we, we get income from those, but that's just the tip of the iceberg and the kinds of things that are uh, possible today through technology, particularly the internet and uh, various forms of, you know, various businesses that you can develop and operate from home, uh, even high tech businesses because of 3d printing and so forth. I've got, I've got people I know who are in high, you know, the, the, this world we have, this manufacturing environment we have here in central Connecticut that's, you know, related to electric boat for nuclear submarines and jet engines and stuff like that. There are suppliers that are doing stuff as mom and pop operations with that community. And, and it's because they have 3D printers in the garage and stuff like that. I know it's hard to imagine, but I, I've talked to engineers that say, yeah, that's happening. So, I mean, even manufacturing, because of the advances in software and because of the ability to create highly specialized goods that you don't need a massive factory to create is is bringing about a, a sort of a new world in which the sort of mom and pop operation can come back. Yeah, I, I mean, I've been involved in the world of fulfillment by Amazon. So I used to do a lot of coaching, a lot of training. And what that is, is basically Amazon has a, a system of warehouses across America and I can ship my product into their warehouse and store it. And when a customer buys online, they ship. They do all the picking and sh- shipping for me, and I have to pay a, uh, a percentage of it. But what that allows me to do is scale up. So I right. I can ship out uh, just ship out a ton of boxes, ship out all this product, and and they do it all for me. And and so suddenly you can have this you know international business. And and use this new technology to do it. And it's it's. I have a lot of. I have some friends that make hundreds of thousands, and even I have one friend who's an ex drug addict, and he's put all his addictive tendencies into reselling, and he makes <laughs> uh, he makes by himself over a million dollars a year reselling wow. on, on on Amazon. And people don't seem to think that's possible, but it's very possible now. So well, yeah. now we could go back to a small town, actually. Uh, that's right. That's right. You don't have to be in New York City uh, to do that. In fact, New York City might be a problem. Yep, because of for a lot of different reasons. Let me ask about two different men then, okay? So one starting out and one starting over. So let's say you've got a young high school grad. He wants to have a biblical household, a household like this that you describe in the book, Man of the House. What sort of uh, sage advice would you give him as he wants to begin the work of building a shelter? Yeah, that's a great question. I get a lot, as you can imagine. Uh, in fact, my own sons are at that stage of life. So the the, the main thing that you know I encourage these guys to do is become uh, competent in a range of things, but very competent in, say, one or two things. So you need to be a kind of blend of, a, of, of you know, having a general set of competencies, you know, that deal with maybe, you know, you know, manual work, some kind of craft work, an ability to organize your work, sort of the intellectual competencies, and then also sort of interpersonal competencies. And I think, you know, a guy that's gotten kind of good at, at sort of this general sort of upgrading in the lives of young men is, is uh, Brett McKay over at the art of manliness. You know, yep. a lot of the stuff that he's doing has, it has to do with that kind of stuff, you know, sort of across the board competencies. You don't, he's not, he's not trying to make you an expert in any one thing, but he's trying to introduce you to a, a range of things that a man ought to be, you know, competent in. 
And what this does is it creates value that a woman who's got sense can recognize. One of the problems that I think guys are dealing with right now is they, is they want to have a respect without having anything to respect. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, so, so you know, they basically are, are uh, wasting their lives, and, you know, doing whatever, and they can't do anything. But the more you can do and the more you can demonstrate, not because you're showing off or bragging, but just in the course of life, I mean, girls are smart. They can observe. You'll r- rise in the estimation of the people that surround you as you grow on, uh, you know, competence across the board. But then you want to be really good in one or two things that make you indispensable. And, you know, those, it's helpful that you, when you, when you enjoy it, <laughs> the kind of thing that you're doing. So like my oldest son, he's an audio engineer. He's very good. He does videos and audio. He's worked for Wheaton college and Wheaton college church and Fuller seminary. And now he's in, Madagascar working with African Inland Mission, uh, recording indigenous music there and uh, for the radio and stuff like that. And his wife is there with him. And then my second son is a, is a steel worker. He's a welder. He's a blacksmith, tool maker. And he's continuing to hone his skills in that, in that particular area. And so they're both in demand. But the thing I've tried to encourage them with over the years is, you know, think about your initial employment experiences in the in this field that you want to become you know indispensable in as more of a paid internship and your long-term goal is to own your own business and during that period of time where you are learning the skills you're building relationships you're learning you know how the business works uh, by just keeping your eyes open and maybe doing different things in it and then someday when you're ready to do your own thing you know then you can either sort of step into it in, in your spare time and your after hours and build up the business until you're ready to make the break. Or if you really feel like you need to give it, you know, everything you got, just make sure you've got some enough financial resources at that point that you uh, are able to, you know, carry yourself through that period of time where you, you're just working like crazy and not making any money. So, you know, that, that's what I would say to the younger guys. So to the uh, guys starting over, let's say, and this is a lot of guys that right. you know they're in their late their late twenties, early thirties. Uh, they they took the bait and they went to college, got some student loans. They, right. They are a cog in some. Well, I don't want to be all negative. They they work <laughs> they work. They're an employee, right? They're a worker bee, right. and right. Um, and a right. lot of them don't have the ability to increase their income and they're just living often from paycheck to paycheck they've got all their maybe they're some money invested in the down payment on their home so they have some equity these are a lot of the people i run into and they start to see their vulnerabilities and they, they have a desire to get some to, to and i don't want to just look at it from the financial perspective but they, right, they right. want to build up their household what would you tell guys that are finding themselves fat soft a little effeminate and and in debt yeah, that's a lot of guys. That's a lot of guys. And most of them, by the time they hit about 30, have kind of gotten, they've kind of woken up. You know, initially, they, like you noted, they bought into this, you know, sort of the, the image that they were given through, you know, television or whatever. And, and then they realized, you know, this is all a scam. <laughs> you know, I, I'm unhappy and, and I don't like the people around me and I'm getting used. 
I mean, you don't have to be, and I'm not saying you need to, to sort of be against capitalism or anything like that. In fact, what you want to do is you want to become a capitalist in the sense that you want to be the guy <laughs> who has the capital. Yep. You want to be the guy who has the business, who owns the business. And there's a basic rule. It's the, it's what I would say is the iron rule of productive property. Everybody works for productive property, either as the owner or as the employee. Now, which do you want to be? That's it. You can either trade your capital or your time to, to make more. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So like the, you know, when you own the business, you're the last person fired, right? Yep. You know, if the business fails, you're the last one that leave, you know, is, is there when it's done. When you're an employee, you know, you're just selling your time and you're basically, you know, sort of measuring out your life in teaspoons as, you know, T.S. Eliot put it. But what you, what you want to do, and this is, by the way, what most of our ancestors did do. Most of our ancestors, up until a couple hundred years ago, owned their own stuff. They really did. Most of them were not employees. Most of them were small holders of property, and they were able to make a living. Now, it wasn't always easy. There was, you know, there's lots of things about the modern world that I like <laughs> and, and they didn't enjoy, but uh, nevertheless, they had something that most of us have lost, and that's you know control uh, over their lives, or at least more control. So I would say to the to the guys, and I I was there, so I understand what you need to do is you need to, need to make it a priority, and then you need to figure out your escape route, and it's going to take a while, not only to figure out what to do, but then to pull it off. So this is a big. This is a long-term project. This is like a five to 10 year project that you're looking at just to get where you would like to be. So don't think it's going to happen overnight. What you have to do is sort of do all the things that you should have done when you were 20. Uh, now you've got some advantages because you've, you know, experienced some life and you probably are better at certain things than you were before. And, you know, you've learned not to trust certain people and learned who you can trust and stuff like that. And you probably have hopefully a, a reputation that you can, you can rely, you know, sort of fall back on. Uh, and people can can you know point to and say that's why I should trust this guy, but it you know there's no sort of cookie cutter. It's it's going to be sort of like uh, on a case by case basis you know, what you need to do in in your particular situation. Let me ask you about another related question. And this, so I, I, as I was talking to men about what they need to do to get their their home in shape to get their wife to follow them. That's what a lot of guys are. How do I get my wife? How do I lead my wife? How do I get her to follow me? And I started thinking about this in terms of pool. And then that got me into the thought of gravity. And then I landed on gravitas. And then I looked up and I discovered that this is, you know, one of the classic Roman virtues. Then I read your book. You have a whole chapter on gravitas. (laughs) And I was like, well, uh, Let's talk about that. What is it and why does a man need gravitas? Yeah. Uh, well, as you know, having read, you know, a lot of sources and, and, and I'm drawing on other, you know, the ancient sources. So this isn't stuff like I cooked up or anything. This is this is the received wisdom of the ages. <laughs> gravitas is weightiness. So that means uh, a person with gravitas can't be taken lightly. They're people that when they when they uh, are in a situation everybody is you know concerned about in a positive or negative way what that person does makes a difference and so consequently you know you better watch what that guy is up to 
Now, this is really helpful when it's put into the service of justice, into the service of you know maintaining the boundaries of your household or looking after your, your interests. And these, these uh, are reasons why historically gravitas was easier for men to acquire. It requires a set of physical attributes. It's harder for sort of uh, smaller people to, to get it. This is why, you know, you've got the little man complex, you know, like with Napoleon and stuff like that, you know, you know, they're, they're trying to, they're trying to sort of project, you know, sort of a, a sense of size or a sense of scale that they can't physically bring you know, into a situation. Uh, so weightiness. Now, now what, what contributes to weightiness? You know, why would somebody have weight? Well, that gets me back to a couple of things. One is, one of them is, one of the reasons is, is knowledge. The word guru, I was fascinated to learn, means weightiness, means weight. And a guru is someone with knowledge that was so great that you couldn't take that person lightly. So you can't take the guru lightly. Glory means weight in the Bible, uh, the weight of glory, you know, uh, kabad. So, you know, we see that occur, you know, in the dedication of Solomon's temple, the glory of the Lord and the and the cloud appears and everybody just falls to their knees is because of the weight of glory. So these, these things contribute to weightiness and, you know, you have to have comp, not just confidence, but actual competence, as I've noted, because if, if anybody thinks that you're just faking it until you make it, you know, they're going to see through that eventually and then you'll be taken lightly. Another thing about uh, gravitas is, is, a, a man with gravity is willing to do the hard thing, the necessary thing, and that can mean cutting someone off. So a lot of these guys who are too, too soft, they fail to ever get across the idea that, you know, you could push me too far, and if you do that, I'm going to cut you off. There's, ne- there's, there's just a sense that, there, that nothing could ever be taken too far. <laughs> you know, you can get away with anything with these guys. Well, another issue you that- cover – it did, yeah. Another issue covered in a book is another one that I'm hoping to get Tony um, – I hope I say his last name right. Esselin, right? Yeah, Tony Esselin, yeah. yeah he wrote a, a wonderful article called Requiem for Friendship back mm. – I think it was for T- Touchstone some years ago okay. and the, uh, the importance of friendship. And you have a chapter – uh, in your book on on friendship and the importance of it. So how does friendship play into the household? Yeah, well, you know, friendship, and, and basically that chapter is an overview of Aristotle's doctrine of friendship. Uh, he identifies three kinds of friends. And generally speaking, we don't do that. We, we, you know, in English, we tend to distinguish the meaning of a word based on its, uh, how it's used and in, in what context it's used. So I like when we talk about love, yeah, I love yeah, my dog. Yeah. I love chocolate. I love my yeah. wife. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And hopefully, you mean different things. But uh, with friendship, it's the same thing. So you've got different kinds of friends. And so what Aristotle did is he said, okay, you've got pleasant friends, you've got useful friends, and you've got true friends. Now, pleasant friends and useful friends, you can have a lot of those. Uh, but what we think of as a true friends, you're just not going to have many of those because so much more is required in order for someone to be a, a true friend. But a, uh, a useful friend, that's basically the lowest level in the way Aristotle thought, but it's also uh, what you need the greatest number of. 
And what he's talking about there is people who have something good that they can contribute to your life in exchange for something good that you have that you can contribute to their life. So anytime there's like, a, you know, people kind of cooperating, you know, and working together on something or even in a business exchange, there is that kind of friendship. Pleasant friends are the people that you like to go to the bar with and have a drink and talk about football with. You know, they're, they're people that you like to hang out with. Now, some of those people are, can be useful. Some of them can actually be useless. You maybe have some friends in your life that just think the only thing that guy is good for is a joke. <laughs> I just like being around him because he's funny or something. But a true friend is someone who is virtuous. And you can only have a genuine friendship with a virtuous person if you are virtuous. And sort of the, the measure of the friend, you know, how, how good that friendship can be, uh, th that true friendship, is how virtuous you are. Now, necessarily, uh, the higher you can ascend the ladder of virtue, the fewer and fewer people there are that can truly be a friend at that level, if you know what I mean. Because there's kind of an equity to friendship because it's based on exchange. So, so according to Aristotle, you really can't have a friendship between people who aren't equal in some sense. So anyway, in a household, you could say that all three levels should be at work. You know, you want to be able to help each other out, be useful to one another. You want to be able to enjoy each other's company, it'd be pleasant. But you also want a, a household where people are willing to make sacrifices for each other, go to the wall for each other, you know, that kind of thing. That would be true friendship. And then, in the, you know, as the further away you get from your own household is kind of the concentric circles mm. so that the largest circle, hopefully, is people that you have a useful relationship with that's positive, not in an exploitive way because they're getting something from you, too, but in a sense of uh, mutual help. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You're writing a, a second book, and I don't know if you settled on the title yet. You must have, right? It's, it's already been sent to the editor, the printer. Yeah, it's supposed to be uh, early copies are supposed to be out next week. So what is the so, title of the book? And uh, can you just tell us a little bit why you why you wrote it? Yeah, I'd be glad to. Uh, I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, Nancy Percy and Tony Eslin have both written uh, forward and afterward to it. So I'm pretty pleased with that. And it was based on a talk that I gave at uh, the latest Touchstone Conference. And so that was sort of, sort of the seed of it. But when I finished Man in the House, Man in the House is really a handbook that's intended to be a very practical guide. It's, it's an introduction to the functional, productive household. And even people who aren't believers should be able to get something out of it. They should be able to pick it up and say, oh, I understand that this guy is a pastor and he's talking about this or that, but look at this, look at this. I can use this and not have to believe it in Christ, that kind of stuff. And in fact, I had one of, one of, my, uh, one of my big reviews on YouTube of the book was by a, an alt-right guy, and he loved it. I think and, I saw that video. Yeah, I thought that yeah. was funny. Yeah, he's a pretty interesting guy. Uh, and we've had a, a good uh, interchange. He's not a he's not a believer. He's not a Christian. And but he uh, he wrote a book entitled uh, "Fighting Muslims in Europe," and he actually did it. <laughs> Bar fights and stuff like that across Europe. Is the guy's name Charles Mar Martel? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. He's big like him. He's a, he's a if, if you see him, you'd say, I don't really want to mess with that guy. But uh, anyway, but the, the second book, I realized, uh, you know, when I talk about what's what's been lost, I talk about, you know, sort of the stuff on the ground has been lost. And that's uh, a good portion of Man of the House is dedicated to that, you know, sort of like life in this world, you know. But I realized that the other thing that had been lost was our point of reference uh, above, sort of the cosmological, you know, reference 
that in the ancient world, again, they, they took for granted. They really did believe that there was an upper story to the universe or to the cosmos and that there were divine beings up there. And they were the ones who gave us the laws that we order our lives by. Now, Christians ought to believe that, but many of them, many Christians, as you know, don't really think that in those terms. They think about Jesus in their hearts, and then they just don't think about it much beyond that. So uh, the the title of the book is uh, The Household and the War for the Cosmos. And it's an, it's an, basically a uh, an introduction to the way that the early church and the households at Christian households in the early church were like Roman how their, their Roman and Greek neighbors, but very different in certain respects and how that way of uh, conducting themselves in their households was the secret uh, was sort of the, the fulcrum that allowed Christianity to turn the world upside down. It was the, uh, it was what Paul was doing. It was what I call guerrilla piety and what you have in Ephesians, I believe and what I lay out in the, in the book is a handbook of guerrilla piety, piety that wins the world. And uh, so that's that's the nature of the book. And uh, again, to anyone that's listening, I want to recommend picking up Man of the House, read it, think about it, and uh, look forward to reading your next book. Well, great, Michael. I appreciate the time. It was a, a lot of fun. Well, it's my pleasure. Well, men, I want to thank you for listening. Please keep recommending this podcast to your friends. Thank you for subscribing. Also, uh, leave reviews for us. It really helps us when you leave reviews on iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play. Uh, And we just – this is for you guys. We want to be helpful to you. If there's anything you would like us to cover in the future or questions you have, reach out to me on Twitter at ThisIsFoster or go to the Facebook page which is It's Good to Be a Man. Also, you can go to the website, it's good to be a man.com. Now, until next time, be on alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love.